0: You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I often get requests from listeners asking for recommendations for other podcasts to listen to. With that in mind, going forward, every month or so, I'm going to do a short mention of another history podcast that I enjoy. As a note, I do not get paid for this. It is just a circle of us independent history podcasters helping each other out. So, this month, I want to mention the History of the Second World War podcast by Wesley Livesay. This is a new podcast by Wesley, who recently wrapped up the excellent History of the Great War. This new show is a, mostly, chronological retelling of World War II. The show is currently talking about the interwar period and how and why the conflict began. So check it out. Just look up History of the Second World War wherever you get your podcast, or you can get more information at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. It is a great new show by a quality guy, and I highly recommend it. That is the History of the Second World War podcast by Wesley Livesey. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part two in our series on Venetian merchant and explorer Marco Polo. Before we get going, a few notes. First, I want to remind everyone that if you want to help out the podcast, you can go leave a nice review of the show wherever you get your show feed, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The only thing it costs you is a minute or two of your time. Second, I want to give a big thank you shout out to all of our patrons, especially those who have committed at our trailblazer and above level. This includes John Paul, Chris, Philip, and Eileen. Thank you so much for your generous support. If you want to become a patron of the show, just go to our website, ExplorersPodcast.com, for more information. Third, a reminder that you can go to our website to view a map of Marco Polo's journey. You can also check out the show notes in your podcast app for a link to the map and other resources about the series. There you go. Notes are wrapped up. On to part two in our series on Marco Polo. Last time, we left Marco Polo, along with his father and uncle, Niccolo and Maffeo, Poised to head across the Middle East, aiming for the port of Ormuz at the entrance of the Persian Gulf, more than a thousand miles away, the city was an ideal location to catch a ship to India. The Polos had been given official documents by the recently elected Pope and were to deliver them to the Mongol Emperor Kublai Khan at his court in the city of Khanbalik, which is modern-day Beijing. Now, a few comments. First, it is important to understand that Marco Polo was a 17-year-old boy when this all began. His father and uncle were the ones who had already gone to China and met with the great Khan. They, not Marco, were tasked with returning to Khan Balik with the Pope's communique. Marco was, at this point, a side character in his own story. Second comment, the Polos had gone from Venice to Acre to Jerusalem and into Armenia. There, their papal escorts, a pair of priests, had turned back after being threatened by a local sultan. In some ways, this was good for the Polos heading into lands filled with Muslims, called Saracens by Marco, the priests were a visible representation of Christianity. With the Crusades in full swing, Muslims and Christians were not exactly on good terms. Thus, the Poles were now just merchants, and it's a lot easier to travel through a predominantly Muslim land as a merchant than as a representative of the Church of Rome. Third comment. I want to mention that the Poles had with them a paisa, a Mongol passport given to them by Kublai Khan. The paisa required all subjects of the great Khan, to give food, shelter, aid, and safe passage to the Polos. This was an incredibly valuable item, but it did not make them invulnerable. The Polos were still subject to the whims of a jealous or rebellious local lord, or the attacks of outlaws and bandits. They needed to tread lightly, no matter where they ventured. Fourth comment, the route that we will take the Polos on is my best interpretation of the journey. The simple truth is that historians have different opinions as to the exact steps the Polos made on their trek east. So what you are hearing is my best guess, but know that others will offer different versions. It's not a big deal, but I thought I would mention it. So, as noted, the Polos headed east from the Mediterranean into what is now called Armenia. Now, today, Armenia is a small country nestled around Azerbaijan, Turkey, Georgia, and Iran. But in Marco Polo's time, the Kingdom of Armenia was much larger, controlling areas of southeastern Turkey and northern Syria, as well as lands in the southern Caucasus and Georgia. It was also one of the more volatile areas found anywhere on the planet, and it had been since the time of Alexander the Great, a person that young Marco Polo was fascinated by. There were crusaders from the west and Mongols from the east, plus a mishmash of peoples and religions that already lived there. This made Armenia a lively and ever-evolving territory. So, the Polos headed east from the Mediterranean, making a wide swing to the north, into Turkey, and then the southern Caucasus, and Georgia, aka Armenia. Here, they would lose their papal contingent, but Niccolò and Maffeo took it in stride and moved on. From Armenia, they headed overland to the port of Ormuz, about a thousand miles away. From there, the plan was to get a ship to India and then go overland to China. The trek to Ormuz would not be an easy one, and in Marco's book, he began to take stock in the people he encountered. Even before heading toward Ormuz, there would be the nomadic Turkoman, Muslims found in Turkey. At this stage, Marco was not open to other peoples and religions, and he would find very little good to say about them. However, one nice thing he commented on were their fine carpets. It might seem like an odd thing to take note of, but it is on par for the course for the Polo clan. Remember, the Polos were merchants, and at every step, they will appraise the goods and services produced by the local peoples, and trade accordingly. And even amongst a bunch of people Marco considered heathens, his training comes through. He looks for the value that these people, no matter their religion, can provide. His father and uncle would trade with the Turkomen and then move on. A place of interest in this early part of Marco's journey was Mount Ararat, which is found in southeastern Turkey. It is here, atop the mountain, that the legendary Noah's Ark was said to rest. Marco was fascinated by the idea of this, but came away disappointed, saying that he could not see the famed Ark. The Polos would strike out southeast from Armenia and reach the city of Mosul on the Tigris River, which is in modern-day northern Iraq. Here Marco would find a Muslim city controlled by the Mongols, something that is going to be commonplace in the Middle East. In the city, Marco would encounter a variety of religions, including Muslims, Jews, Christians, and even Buddhists. He would also run into Nestorian Christians, followers of Nestorius, the 5th century patriarch of Constantinople. The Nestorians believed that Jesus was of two natures, one divine, one human. To the Church of Rome, this was heresy. Persecuted and stamped out in the West, the Nestorians would thrive in the East, in particular around Persia. In fact, they were often called Eastern Christians by those in the West. However, by Marco's day, the Church was in decline, but that did not stop the young man from becoming fascinated by their presence, a strange Christian community in the East, even if it was a heretical one. Now, I mention all these religions for a couple of reasons. One, it is kind of an obsession of Marco Polo's. In his book, he talks at length about the different religions that he encounters. In many ways, his travels will be a spiritual journey, as he will become fascinated by the many peoples and religious institutions that he encounters. It will be an ongoing subject throughout our narrative. And the second reason I mention this is that the religious diversity encountered by the Polo's is somewhat unique. The truth is that Marco came from a land that did not tolerate other religions very well. Yet here, in a land controlled by the Mongols, he found a plethora of religious ideas and practices. The Mongols tolerated, even respected, most religions and people of religious orders. Thus, you will find thriving communities of Buddhists next to Muslims or whatever else was out there. This was very different from Christianity or Islam. At this point in his book, Marco talked at length about the legendary city of Baghdad, which was only about 200 miles from Mosul. In 1258, the city had been captured by Hulugu Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan and the brother of Kublai Khan. In the aftermath, the entire Muslim population had been executed, and in Marco's time, the city had only about a tenth of its former population. The Christian population of Baghdad had reportedly been spared because Hulugu's wife was an Nestorian Christian. I mention this for several reasons. The first is that this fate, the destruction and slaughter of an entire city, was all too common in these areas. Starting with Genghis Khan, the Mongols had swept into the region and crushed anyone who dared to stand against them. Hundreds of thousands, even millions of people, were put to death in these wars, which were still ongoing. It was brutal, and it displayed how the Mongols operated. If you defied them, there was no mercy. Cities that capitulated before the Mongol banners were spared, but to offer resistance was a death sentence. Thus, there were many cities in the Middle East that were shadows of their former glory, depopulated by the sword, their walls and battlements torn down, and their infrastructure destroyed. The second reason I mention this is that you will find an undercurrent of anger and resentment amongst the local people. Even if the Mongols brought peace to the area, it did not forgive them for what they had done in the previous generations. And the third and final reason I bring up Marco's discussion of Baghdad, despite the fact that he probably never actually went there, was that it was the kind of thing Marco Polo will do throughout his travels, He describes a place in great detail, such as the markets and the people and the customs, despite never having actually been there. This is one of those weird things about Marco Polo's travels. The reader doesn't always know what is true and what is not. In many ways, it seems intellectually dishonest, talking about a city that you have never visited. However, this kind of thing was not uncommon at the time. And I want to stress, regarding the descriptions of Baghdad by Marco Polo, they are not wrong. What he recounted is quite accurate. I mean, Marco would have learned a ton about the city from those around him, and thus he described the city pretty well. However, it is a red flag, one of those things we need to be aware of for everything that Marco talks about. Anyhow, from Mosul, the next major city the Polo family would reach was Tabriz, which was known as a vibrant commercial center. Products from as far as India were on display, and the city was also a hub of pearl trade. As merchants, the Polos would participate in that trade. From Tabriz, the Polo family would move on, traveling to Savah in Persia, then Kerman and then Rudbar. he noted the attractive commodities, including Persian rugs, livestock, turquoise, and weapons. He also mentioned falconry, a sport that he was enthralled with, and something that was embraced by both the East and the West. These areas were, for the most part, fairly safe, but know that the Polos would go with other groups as often as possible, just for safety's sake. However, the Polos would deal with one very dangerous group, who Marco called the Karanas. These were Mongol peoples who had nominal allegiance to the local Khan, but who were greatly feared by travelers. Marco called them marauders, who numbered upwards of 10,000, which is probably an exaggeration, but we don't know for sure. The Karanas were swift and deadly, and could wipe out villages and towns in the blink of an eye. In his book, Marco doesn't elaborate on the specifics, but he says his group barely avoided the bandits on more than one occasion before finally reaching the port of Ormuz, Which was at the entrance of the Persian Gulf. The location made Hormuz a key stop in the trade of goods via ship from the east. In Hormuz, Marco would note the city's excellent port. However, the quality of the ships, the polos found, was severely lacking. They discovered that most of the ships did not use nails, but instead employed wooden pegs in the thread of coconut husks. In the Indian Ocean, which was known to be rough and dangerous, such ships would be at great risk. Due to the poor quality of the ships, plus the Indian Ocean's reputation as a haven for pirates, Marco's father and uncle elected to abandon their current travel plans. Instead of going by sea, they would go to the court of the Great Khan by land, via the Silk Road, just as they had done many years before. So, into the heart of Persia went Marco and his family. I want to point out that the Silk Road was not called the Silk Road at this time. That term was coined in 1877 by Baron Ferdinand von Richthofen, a German geographer. And the Silk Road was not one long, continuous road. It was a series of established trade routes that spanned from the Middle East to the Pacific Ocean. There were side routes everywhere, going north and south, but the heart of the road is a continuous route across the Asian continent. And it is a route that the Polos would elect to follow. For this section of the journey, the Polos would use camels and donkeys as their primary mode of transportation. The camels were the two-humped Bactrian kind, animals that could carry five and six hundred pounds, cover 30 miles in a day, and not drink water for three days. This latter trait was immensely valuable, as the Polos frequently went days at a time without finding water of any kind. And at times when they did find water, it was often undrinkable, making the men and animals sick. Marco noted that, quote, drink one drop of it and you void your bowels ten times over, end quote. Now, as the three Venetians headed into the Persian mountains, Marco Polo would make another major discovery, and that was women. The women here, he would proclaim, were the most beautiful in the world. He declares this even though the women were Muslims, which is a pretty big deal for him at this time. Women and the sexual customs of the local people will become a regular, and at times, obsessive focus of young Marco Polo. And it's not a shocker, as we have to remember he is only 17, 18 years old. In some ways, Marco Polo's focus on women and sex is something that makes his book so accessible. And it's not that it's titillating, it's just that it's very real. It's about an 18-year-old kid traveling into exotic lands, encountering exotic people, and growing into a man. That he focused on women and sex is entirely understandable. Now, women aside, Marco also loved the dramatic, as did his biographer, Rusticello. So in these lands, Marco would go into detail about subjects that were fascinating to him and his readers. And at this point, he does dive into one of those exotic subjects, and that is the assassins. If you don't know the history of the assassins, it is pretty sensationalistic. The assassins were an Islamic sect who lived in the mountains of Persia. Their primary fortress was a place called Alamut, or the Eagle's Nest. According to Marco, they were led by a mysterious leader called the Old Man. For centuries, the assassins used murder and espionage and fear to leverage tribute from the neighboring lands. As you can imagine, they had a dark reputation. The sect would mostly come to an end in the 1250s when the Mongols, under Hulagu Khan, waged war against the assassins and their allies. The assassins would essentially be finished as a political entity by 1275. However, in 1272, one of their members would stab Prince Edward of England, who was in Jerusalem on crusade. The prince would survive and go on to become Edward I, but the reputation of the assassins spread throughout Europe. You can imagine the stories, These were murderers who used drugs to enthrall their members. They hid in the shadows and, as an Islamic sect, were out to get Christians. That's all pretty intense and scary stuff for the Europeans. And thus, when Marco Polo recounted his tale, the desire for more information on the notorious assassins made for an immensely dramatic addition to his travels. And it would also help solidify the reputation of the assassins in Western lore. The Polos would go eastward into Afghanistan, Going slowly and trading as they went. Remember, one of the tactics of the Polos was to convert their trade goods into gems whenever possible. They would sew these gems into the hems of their clothing to prevent losing them. The Polos would eventually reach the city of Balkh in Afghanistan. Balkh was a center of Zoroastrianism and called the gateway to the Silk Road. Marco said it was a quote, noble and great city. End quote. However, Balk, like many cities in the area, had been devastated by Genghis Khan and his Mongol armies, who had put the entire population to the sword. When Marco praised the city, he was likely referring to Bulk's storied past. So, along the Silk Road the Polos went. And a reminder, the Silk Road was not just about transporting silk. I mean, silk was important, but a myriad of goods went both ways along the series of roads and trails from Central Asia to China. From the East came gems, jewels, spices, teas, dyes, salt, china, porcelain, perfumes, ivory, paper, and medicine. From the West, there was honey, fur, gold, silver, slaves, weapons, glassware, and textiles. Much of these were luxury goods, the kind of thing one could make a huge profit on. Now, in addition to trade goods, we should remember that other things came via the Silk Road as well. There were technologies and ideas, including gunpowder, paper, religion, science, and so forth. And we can't forget there were also bad things, such as disease. The infamous Black Death, the Plague, is believed to have originated in Asia and come to Europe along the Silk Road in the 1300s. Along the route to the east, the Polos would travel in caravans. These were groups of wayfarers who moved together for safety purposes. For this part of the Silk Road, the caravans would come to a place called a Canavisari. This was a fortified compound, often near an oasis or village or water source. Some were quite elaborate, and towns would spring up around them. The beneficiaries were spaced about 20 miles apart, the distance a caravan would typically travel in a single day. This allowed a caravan a safe place to stay each night along the route. There would be food, water, shelter, replacement camels, that sort of thing. It made for a mostly safe and thriving trade network, but it did not mean that there weren't threats from bandits. However, the justice served by the local Mongol administrators was swift and brutal. Thus, fear, more than anything, kept the route open and safe. So across Afghanistan to the east went the Polos. As a note, when I say Afghanistan, the region I'm talking about was bigger than what is the current nation of Afghanistan. It would have stretched further north and east. Next, the Polos would reach the city of Badakhshan in northern Afghanistan, a place known for its gems, in particular rubies and lapis lazuli. The Polos, of course, were very interested in this and were active participants in the gem trade. Here, Marco would tell the story of how the local horses were born with horns, aka as unicorns. It is a fanciful tale, and I mention it because it displays Marco's love of recounting fantastic stories. Some of these more far-fetched tales are just stories he picked up from the locals, and he says so, but other times he'll literally say he saw or experienced something outrageous or plain impossible, which again can undermine his credibility. Now, to reach Bad I can't stress how dangerous this had been for the three Venetians. The perils they had faced included disease, bandits, starvation, thirst, windstorms, cold, and heat. They went through them all. And this is not just Marco bragging or telling tall tales. Other people had taken these same trails and roads and had recorded similar obstacles on their journeys. And with the mention of disease and sickness, it is time to introduce some sort of illness into our story. It was here that Marco would become gravely ill. We do not know exactly what happened to him, but it would force the polos to stay in Badakhshan for an entire year. Some historians speculate that Marco was felled by malaria, but the lack of mosquitoes in the area makes that unlikely. A more probable candidate was tuberculosis. I say that because, to help with whatever he had, Marco was, quote, advised to go up to the mountain, end quote. High altitude and fresh air are considered good for dealing with tuberculosis, which is an infectious disease that mainly affects the lungs. Historically, tuberculosis was often called consumption. A person suffering from the disease often experiences a severe cough, shortness of breath, chills, fever, loss of appetite, and weight loss. Tuberculosis is one of those diseases that can be quite mild or very severe, even deadly. But if Marco had the illness, the long layover would indicate that he was quite sick, and it was lucky he did not die. Historian and author Lawrence Bergreen suggests that Marco may have had to detoxify from the use of opium which was commonly used to deal with many illnesses at the time. Again, this is just a theory. No matter, in the end, we don't know exactly what plagued young Marco, but it would delay the polo for an entire year. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, it was now 1273, and the Polos were two years into their journey to reach Kublai Khan. They had traveled at least 2,500 miles at this point, probably a lot more, and had at least that many more to go to reach Khan Balik and the court of the Great Khan. With Marco recovered and able to travel, the Polos would head up into the mountains along the Silk Road. Marco would write about passing through villages of Buddhists, something he had never encountered before. Eventually, they would climb up through the Tariq Pass over the Pamir Mountains and onto a grassy plateau in what is modern-day Tajikistan. Crossing over the Pamirs is the traditional dividing line between the east and the west, and in crossing, the Polos were entering what is called the Roof of the World. The plateau was as high as 14,000 feet and was only passable in the cool, dry summer months, but the mountains that surrounded the Polos were immense. Marco called it one of the highest places on earth, and he was right. Around him soared mountains 20 and 25,000 feet high, or more. This is the mountainous interior of Asia, consisting of the Pamirs, Himalayas, the Tibet, the Chien Shan, and the Altai Mountains. It was, and still is, a harsh land. Marco noted that there were no birds, and water was difficult to boil at such an altitude, and fires were stunted and weak, due to the thin oxygen. Now, if any of you have ever hiked at 14,000 feet, you know how hard it is. Your lungs burn as they strain for oxygen, and water literally is sapped out of your body at such heights. The local people had, of course, adapted to the high altitudes, but for travelers such as the Polos, the trek would have been a struggle. By the way, Marco called the mountain dwellers savages, and he and his caravan avoided them as a rule. I do want to mention that, despite all of these challenges, Marco would note the peace and beauty of the region. The Polos in their caravan would descend from the grassy plateau and come to the Taklamukan Desert, which is located in far western China. They would skirt along the southern edge of the desert and travel for 60 days until they reached the city of Khotan. At one point, they went 12 days without seeing a town or village or dwelling or even people. Khotan was an ancient Buddhist kingdom, but at this time was under the control of the Mongol Empire. It was Marco's first serious encounter with Buddhists, and he was repelled by it. He just could not get his head around the religion's complexities and focused much of his attention on the idols, meaning the Buddhist statues. The extensive monasteries and the inhabitants' lifestyles captivated him, but at this time, it was so alien that it repulsed him. From Koten, the Polos would continue along the route, eventually reaching the outpost of Lop. Lop, also called Lop Nur, was a key outpost because it sat between the Taklamukan and the Gobi Deserts. Anyone heading east had to stop and prepare for a long journey. People and animals would need to recuperate for what was ahead, and supplies had to be readied. Marco would write this about what lay ahead. it is reported to be so long that it would take a year to go from end to end, and at the narrowest point, it takes a month to cross it. It consists entirely of mountains and sands and valleys. There is nothing at all to eat. Quote. And that assessment is not that inaccurate. This step of the Silk Road across the Gobi Desert was a brutal one. There were no dwellings, no people, no food, and little water. The lands were frequently racked by sandstorms, and there'd be a hundred degree days and sub freezing temperatures at night. Marco would become spiritual when discussing crossing these desolate lands. He said that he had visions and heard voices and singing, especially at night. Now, the voices are likely a thing called singing sands, which are a real thing, and are essentially a sound produced by winds as they whip amongst the dunes. Such sounds have been reported in other places around the world. The visuals were probably tricks of the light and sands and winds at this high altitude, Add in dehydration, malnutrition, and fatigue, and it makes for a mysterious and awe-inducing atmosphere. A month later, the Polos would emerge out of the desert and in the province of Tangut, probably through the Yuman Pass. The first major city they reached was Shazhou, today called Duhuang, in what is now the Gansu province of China. The Polos were still over a thousand miles from Kanbalik. In Tangut, Marco would be amazed and a bit overwhelmed by the land's religion, which was predominantly Buddhist. He said there were monasteries that housed up to 2,000 monks, claims that would be met with disbelief back in Europe. Now, I do want to mention another thing that Marco had been doing, and would do even more so, as he immersed himself in the various peoples and lands of Asia. And that was his description of these cultures. As you can imagine, he talked about religion, politics, trade goods, and sex. But also, he physically described the people that he met, talked about what they ate, their festivals, their customs, and their habits, that sort of thing. Example, in Tangut, he goes into detail about the practice of cremation, which shocked and appalled him. Another custom that amazed and probably thrilled him was how women were encouraged to have sexual relations with any man staying at their home. This included wives, sisters, and daughters. All this makes Marco a unique source of historic information about multiple peoples throughout Asia. He was an anthropologist and ethnologist before the terms were even coined. Now, while in the province of Tangut, something would occur that caused the Polos to stay put for another year. Why this happened, we don't know. It could have been an illness in the party, unrest amongst the native people, or the local lord may have just been having too much fun with these strange travelers. Or perhaps the Polos were engaged in trading or some other venture. No matter, the Polo family would not get back on the road until 1274. They had been away from Venice for three years, and Marco was no longer a teenager, but a 20-year-old young man. These years on the road would have transformed Marco physically and intellectually. It is believed that Marco would become proficient in four languages, including Mongolian, Persian, Arabic, and Turkish. This is an incredible skill, and one that he will put to good use in the future. In many ways, he was receiving a world education unlike anything most people could imagine, He was learning how to live and thrive amongst different cultures and people and places. It really was an astounding opportunity for a young man. So, forward went the Polos. Now, some people would argue that they would have headed north, into Mongolia for Karakorum, the traditional capital of the Mongol Empire. However, for more than a decade, Karakorum had been superseded by Khanbalik as the main residence of Kublai Khan. Thus, they pushed east into China. The Polos would travel for a year before, in May of 1275, they finally reached the summer residence of the great Khan in Shangdu, which is about 150 miles north of Kanbalik. Shangdu was also called Xanadu. Some sources say that the Polos met the Khan in Kanbalik, which is possible, but whatever the location, it doesn't really matter. It had taken the Venetians four years to cross the Asian continent, but they were finally here. Kublai Khan had heard about the approaching of his Christian envoys, and he sent men to escort the Polos to his palace. Upon arriving, the Polos were brought to Kublai Khan, who was in company with many of his barons. This moment would have been an amazing one for the Polos, especially Marco, who had heard stories of the great Khan ever since his father had returned home years earlier. And now it was time to meet the legendary warlord. Marco's father and uncle approached Kublai Khan first. Marco recounting the moment this way, They knelt before him with great reverence and with the utmost humility. The great Khan bade them rise and received them honorably and entertained them with good cheer. After exchanging polite greetings, the Khan engaged the elder polos, asking about all that had happened to them since their departure years before. Nicola and Maffeo would tell the Khan their story and then handed over the official letters from the Pope, which pleased him. But what really thrilled the great Khan was the holy oil, procured from the sepulchre of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. It was a great and prized gift, and the Khan was well pleased with it. And with that, it was time for Marco Polo to take the stage. The great Khan, on seeing Marco, asked who the young man was. Niccolo spoke to the emperor, saying, Sir, he is my son and your man, whom, as the dearest thing I have in the world, I have brought with great peril and ado from such distant lands to present him to thee for thy servant. The Khan appraised the young man, then said, May he be welcome. And it pleases me much. End quote. So there you have it. Marco Polo had been introduced to the great Kublai Khan. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. The Polos had crossed Asia, taking four years to make the dangerous trek. Young Marco had grown from a teenager to a 21 year old man in that time. It is unlikely that he had any idea about what lay ahead of him, but he assuredly did not expect to spend the next 20 years in Asia, but that is exactly what lies in his future. So, next time, we will do a couple of things. First, we will dive a bit into the Mongol world, including learning more about the great Khan, who will have a dramatic influence on the life of Marco Polo. We will then get Marco set off on his own adventures throughout Asia. And that, my friends, wraps up things for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening. I wish you all good health. Please take care, and I will see you next time.